I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This episode of the Racket Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, offering iconic tracksuits, classic polos, and the new Youngline sneaker. Originally designed in the mid-1980s, it's our favorite spring silhouette, and it's back. You can get it now at SergioTacchini.com, and follow them on Instagram at SergioTacchini underscore official for updates. Enter the promo code RACKETMAG at checkout, and you'll get 30% off your order. Hello. Good morning, Caitlin. Great to see you again on Zoom. So speaking of Zoom, you had a very important Zoom call with a, nay, our first repeat guest. We now have a guest coming on the show for two times, and it's not just any guest. Who is it? Well, you know, if you're going to go, you got to go for the big ones. So I got Chrissy Everett again. Um, We were having a really you know, we're very good friends and we were having a nice chat about the pitfalls and the traps of being famous when you're young. And we were sort of going on and on about other things in life, right? And she had just said to me, you know, I felt like in the first part, it was just a little little bit more fun and just basic stuff about tennis. And she said, I would really like to talk about sort of some of the pitfalls and some of the difficulties of being a professional tennis player and um, how we all live in a bubble. Obviously, it's given her everything that she has in her life. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's no easy street being a professional tennis player. And it's certainly no easy street being a really very famous professional tennis player from someone who's come from being famous at a really young age. And it's just the pitfalls of that sort of life and how it takes a long time to get to a place where you feel like you understand yourself. And because I think when you're really young, you really don't understand anything. Well, Um, I think that's true of everybody, whether you're an incredibly famous uh, world-defining professional athlete, or if you're just somebody who's trying to figure out what life is all about. And to me, I think our best episodes not only give you insight into what the game's greatest personalities and champions are going through and maybe some of those behind-the-scenes moments, but really take you to an interesting philosophical place where you get to see and understand that, you know, life is hard and difficult and sort of a winding road for literally everybody, whether you have 18 Grand Slams, as does Chrissy, and the greatest clay court record of all time, including Rafael Nadal, or if you're just an average Joe who's trying to figure it out. And so this episode really does that, and it was really a pleasure to listen to and a pleasure to edit for me. Oh, great. Well, you know, one of the things I always try and get out with these podcasts or us, or when I'm doing interviews, and I always talk about this, is to get the real side of a, re- a real person, because they're real people. And uh, we're going to hear a lot of that today from Chrissy. Um, some, you know, sort of eye-opening moments after winning, you know, one of the biggest matches of her life. Um, and we've, we've heard it from Kim as well, Kleisters, when we had her. But also just, you know, one of the things that I want people to really understand about Chrissy is she's truly one of the funniest people I I know (laughs) in my life. It doesn't come off a lot of laughter in this one. It comes a lot more deeper and a lot more, we get into a lot more deeper things, but just at the end of it, I want everyone to know she really is one of the greatest and funniest people I know. And I love working with her at ESPN and I hope you guys enjoy this episode with the great Chris Everett. Are 
recording. Okay, so for the first time in the history of the Racket Magazine podcast, we are having a part two. We've technically had one and two with Kim Kleisters, but we're having the first return guest, the one and only Chris Evert, or as we call her, Chrissy. Hi, Chrissy. It's a, you're 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 at part two, first timer. I know. Well, we left out a lot, didn't we, in that first one? So we have a lot to cover. Well, there is a <laughs> there is a lot to cover. I think we were mostly talking about um, our love lives towards the end. So it was getting a little bit down in the gutter there for a while. Um, but we've since returned. It's now a couple of years later, and life has changed. <laughs> Maybe for me, maybe not for you, but we are definitely um, really excited again to have you back. Uh, obviously, you are a very, dear, a very dear friend of mine and we work together at ESPN, but it's kind of weird for me because you're also truly one of the greatest tennis players that's ever played this game. So if I can pick your brain for another episode. Yep, go for I, it. I am going to do it. You can pick my brain, you can pick on me, you can do whatever you want, Renee. Well, I don't, I, I pick on you enough, so I'm not going to do it too much. Okay. <laughs> uh, Chrissy, I guess the first thing I have to ask you is we are in uh, the COVID quarantine still. Uh, I'm not sure when we're going to release this pod, but it will be in the next week or two. So I don't see things changing very much. But I guess I have to ask you, what have you been up to in uh, this time and how tough has it been for you? It really hasn't been that tough for me compared to looking at other people and, you know, the, the frontline workers and, um, you know, the, the unfortunate patients who are in the hospital and those afflicted by the virus. So I can't, I can't complain at all. Um, I have my son, Alex with me, who's 28 years old and he, thank God, um, is with me because I don't think anybody really wants to be going through this by themselves, you know, in case anything emergency happens. Um, it would be, it, it would be really sad. So oh, thank heavens I have him. Way to rub that Oh in. my God, we're gone. Sorry, you're by yourself. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, okay, that's the first uh, mistake that I made in this. Okay, so, that's but you, no, 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 no. I don't consider that because you know, that's wrong because next door you have neighbors on your right side and on your left side, you have girlfriends all over the, ten the place. I mean, not girlfriends, girlfriends, but you have women friends all over New York City. So I don't, I don't really consider that alone. Okay. Am I, did I dig myself out of that hole That's pretty well? Fine. It's fine. Oh, well, I did Zoom. Okay. With you. So. I did Zoom with you and McHenry the other day, so I do feel like I get my. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I was I actually was spending a lot of time. Um, Alex is really into CrossFit, so he built like a CrossFit gym. Not built. He bought a CrossFit gym, um, pretty much some some equipment, some machines that we put in our garage. So he puts me through workouts every day. So I'm like, you know, whenever there's stress or anxiety, I'm like running to exercise because that is a great a release for me. So just doing that and um, and like you like you said, just going on FaceTime. Fortunately, our our tennis academy, the Ever Tennis Academy, opened up last week. So. We're, we're, we have a lot of precautions and we're, we have a lot of restrictions, two on a court, the coaches have a mask, one coach on a court on the side of the, you know, sidelines. And um, so I'm out, out at the academy getting some uh, sunshine, which is great. But I think life is, this month, I think there's going to be a little bit, um, you know, maybe a little bit of a shift and more things are going to open. Up. Yeah, uh, it's always really good to get back on the court and obviously be around the kids. Um, it's been part of your life for so long now, the Everett Academy and your brother John and you get to spend time with him. And so the other thing is I'm thinking about, okay, that's, that's everything I do. You know, that's action. But what it's done also for me is it's sort of a gut check. And it's sort of, we, we've, we all have had a lot of time to think. We all have free time to really think and check our priorities, reevaluate maybe our priorities and reevaluate how we want to show up and what our life is like. And I think, um, I think it's going to cause a shift with, with a lot of people and, and change their priorities because, uh, you know, life is simpler now living the way we're living. And, um, you know, I think it's important to su sustain ourselves during this time and to sort of um, control our emotions and control the things that we can, because this, 
this virus, I mean, it doesn't matter how rich or famous you are. It's going to hit anybody. It's, it doesn't discriminate, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, well, not only on top of, you know, COVID-19 and what we're seeing around the world and obviously in this country, um, you also had a pretty devastating thing happen to you in the last couple of months, not only having to deal with sort of the isolation and being by yourself, but also the loss of your, um, your sister Jeannie. So, I mean, has that, how, how, how did that affect you? Cause it's been a long couple of years because she obviously was uh, quite ill with cancer and you've been, you know, having to deal with that and, and that relationship. And now what is that also, you know, meant to you and done to you over the last couple of months? Well, it, it, it's not, it, it's not the last couple of months have been easier. You know, I think, I, I think the last two and a half years were really tough because she was going through a very tough uh, cancer, ovarian cancer, which if you want to, if you get cancer, you don't want to get that one. You know, you, that's like the worst for a woman. Um, and right from the start, there's, there's, there's no test, first of all. And she, when she went and finally got a test, she was stage four, which is horrible. And she went through two and a half years of, of pain and uh, needles and, um, you know, all kinds of different treatments. And, and, you know, I just saw her go from like 120 pounds to 80 pounds and skin and bone. And, you know, I just wanted to be there and hold her hand, but it's just, you know, just to go to see somebody you love go through that pain. She was my best friend and she, she as a sister was always, was in my shadow a lot as a tennis pro. And yet she was my biggest supporter. And I feel like it's almost like Venus and Serena, like they have such a great supportive relationship. I felt like Jeannie was like that. She had every, every reason to be envious or jealous or, or really kind of mad at times. But I mean, she just handled my success, you know, like the person that she was and just with integrity. And, um, so she was my best friend. She and Claire, my other sister, are my two best friends, and and I miss her. But then all of a sudden, a week after, after she passed, this virus appeared. And believe me, the last year, this whole, the cancer went into her lungs. So I was I would every day I would wake up in the morning and I'd get my cup of coffee and I'd go outside and sit on, my, on a bench and I would talk to Jeannie and I would go Jeannie. I'm so glad you're not here to deal with this because if you, if you were afflicted with this, it would be the most painful thing in the world. You went peacefully and, um, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, but I, I'm, the timing was good. I love you. I miss you. But I, I still, I talk to her every day and she just gives me a lot of strength. Yeah. Oh, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's heavy for anybody. And I, I, I would suspect that those days, even though you had your son there, it was still a period of time that, you started to reevaluate a lot of your life a little bit because I think, you know, death to somebody, especially someone as close to you as your best friend, makes you reevaluate everything that you've gone through in your life and the successes that you have and the people around you and who's important to you. And we talk on a pretty regular basis. And one of the mm -hmm. things we talked about was how growing up as, I mean, essentially a superstar, which you were, life is not really normal. You know, it's not. It's not really a normal upbringing and the people around you are sort of, you find them to be yes people. No one really says no to you. Obviously your father was quite a strong figure in your life, but it's still, you're the superstar. I mean, can you kind of explain to people what, what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago in general yeah. about the tennis world and the bubble that we live in and superstars live in? Well, I think it's really difficult when you are successful and famous at a young age before you develop a personality and before you develop real character. Because I think to develop real character, you have to, you have to grow up and go through experiences and go through adversity and that character grows. But I was pretty much um, on uh, pretty much famous around 15 years old when I first beat um, Margaret Court, who's number one in the world. And right away in that year, the press dubbed me or named me, um, put me in a bubble and named me Cinderella and Sneakers, Little Miss Icicle, Cinder, you know, just, just all these, all these 
I guess, complimentary um, terms, but you know, I had an image right away at 15 years old before I even had a personality, before I even knew who I was. And then when you are in that bubble, you find, you, you find out that you sort of have to live in that bubble <laughs> because, you know, at that point, the whole world was looking at me. I didn't want to be controversial. You know, it was hard for me. I, I actually was so young that I didn't even have opinions at that time. You know, when people would ask me, at 15, 16, what do you think the state is of women's tennis? I, you know, I don't know. I'm not a business person. I'm not, you know, so. You're like, I'm I technically think, not even a yeah. woman yet. So can you just let me have that first? You're not, a, you're, you, well, you're barely a teenager and you just haven't lived any life and you just don't have any answers. And, and I remember Martina said something really interesting. She said, you know, fame at a young age doesn't serve you well as a developed human being and i think that's i think that's really true um i lived my image and and i and i know other players did too and i have to tell two two really interesting stories i played an exhibition with um anna kornikova and we're in the locker room and okay this this is a this is a young lady who's who's who puts models to shame she is head and shoulders more gorgeous than any model. But she was putting on like three layers of makeup and mascara and da-da. And I go, I go, Anna, you are so beautiful, natural. Why? She goes, this is what the people want. This is what they want. Same with John McEnroe. I played an exhibition with him. And I go, he, he, he really acted like kind of an a-hole out there. And he was like, you know, kind of disruptive. And after I go, John, it's a it's not a match. It's not a tennis match. It's an exhibition. He goes, this is what the people pay for. You know? <laughs> and then I realized, you know, everybody kind of other people are in, in the same boat as I was where when I went out there, I didn't want to act out of place. You know, I didn't want to throw my racket or break it or cuss or, you know, I knew that all eyes were on me and I knew I had an image. Is there part of you that wanted to do that sometimes? I think when I was younger, um, and actually, you know, no, no. Oh, you're and, and I think on the court, I think that was me on the court. I mean, what on the court, what you see is what you, what you expect, what you expect. And, and, and was me because I always had that ability to stay calm and concentrate. And I never thought a point was worth, um, you know, being an ass about, I never thought it was, it was worth it. But off the court, I think when I was asked, you know, questions, controversial questions or how I felt or after a match, I think that I played it pretty safe and, and, you know, oh, my opponent played too well. And meanwhile, I was like, well, I blew it. (laughs) Um, So I wasn't always 100% honest with how I felt because I just didn't want to rock the boat and be controversial. So, so, you know, being famous and, and having that, um, that fame and fortune at a young age, I, I think, I don't think is always a good thing. And you know what, when you look in the movie business or the music business, you can see there are even examples, right. You know, that, that uh, of what I'm saying. So it's hard. I think it's changing now though. I think that, I think that people are embracing, um, young kids to just uh, say what they feel. Uh, But do you? And they're not judging them as men. But I don't know. I mean, think about now with social media, um, yeah. all the avenues to get your point across, all the avenues where you can get in trouble, whether it be tweeting or Instagramming a picture maybe you shouldn't have or saying something. I mean, look at Dominic Team. I mean, he said something pretty, a little controversial a couple of weeks ago about not supporting the lower ranked players. And boy, he's been getting a lot of crap for it. You know, I mean, obviously Novak Djokovic has said stuff about vaccinations and, you know, people are jumping on him. Maybe back yeah. in your day, it was like, like right now, there'd be no way to communicate, right? There'd be no way, no press, no nothing. So, I mean, how would you imagine living as a superstar now with all of the social media? Um, I, I think it would be, I think the privacy factor is so much worse now, you know, and I hated the privacy factor when I was playing. It was like, leave me alone, you know, headlines, when I got divorced, headlines. And it's like, really? New York Times headlines, you know, Chris Ever and John Lloyd are getting divorced. I'm like, oh my God, it just put, I just want to crawl in a hole. So privacy issues are worse, but the world is more tolerant now. 
and the world is more accepting now. And I think pretty much anything goes. I think it was a bigger deal when Billie Jean and Martina came out as being gay, you know, than nowadays, it's not a big deal. Nowadays, nowadays, I'm telling you, if, if you're, as long as you're honest and you're true to yourself, um, it doesn't matter. People are just more uh, accepting and tolerant and supportive if you're different. So I think it's in that respect, I think it's easier today. Let me tell you, Dominic Team, that quote isn't going to tarnish his, his reputation. Or Novak Djokovic, I don't think it's going to tarnish. Because I don't, people forget. People forget. Yeah, well, there's the next uh, news cycle that comes around quickly, um, I guess. Yeah, true. I mean, but like living in now, like living the life that you've lived and the experiences that you've had and, you know, the success you had on the tennis court and then going off of the tennis court. And, you know, in, in some respects, you had a lot of success. You had a great marriage. You had three great kids, you know, and then you've had, you've had three divorces, you know? So it's like, do you think that the early part of your life and not having substantial social lives, right? I mean, when was your first boyfriend? Seriously, when was your first boyfriend? Absolutely. Um, my first boyfriend was, um, if you can consider boyfriend, was eighth grade and his mother drove us to a school dance and his mother drove me home, uh, us home, me home. And, um, his name was, I, I can't, his name was Greg, funny enough. Um, and uh, yeah, I didn't have that many relationships until Jimmy really. And, and I was 17, I think when I met him, um, but you know that's the other thing that college component when you don't go to college boy i think that that kind of made a difference i, I find that the, the girls like when i look at nicole gibbs and you know I, I just look at the girls that go to college and i see that some very well-rounded intelligent sensible girl ladies you know and and when i was 16 and i was going on i was playing on the circuit i was I mean, the women were 25, 30 years old and it was not a, not a normal environment really for a 15 or 16 year old, if you think about it. So, I mean, you have all that stacked up against you when you're young. So what did you learn through that process of going through a lot of, you had, you know, you obviously had a lot of ups and downs on the tennis court, most of them, right. but outside of the tennis court, a lot of, right. let's face it, ups and downs, but you have to have that persona of everything's okay. I am the ice queen. I am the princess in sand shoes or whatever shoe you were calling it, tennis shoes. I mean, was it hard for you to sort of also live that very um, public life, personal life for you off of the tennis court? Well, it was public, but it was also, I want to say surface. And I also want to say, um, I what mean, I had surface meaning, well, really, the, I mean, the life of a tennis player back then, I mean, I pretty much, you know, graduated from high school, but when I played a, tournaments, I would usually be a night match, right? I was usually the feature at seven o'clock, so I'd have all day, I'd practice, and then I'd go back to my hotel room and watch, you know, soap operas. So it wasn't a very educational, maybe, um, kind of life. Listen, I had, I, I had... I had goals and my goals were to win tennis tournaments, to be number one. And as a result, my friendships and relationships suffered early on when I was in my, you know, teens and, and early twenties. And, and one example of that is I beat Yvonne Gulagong at Wimbledon in 76, I believe. And I think it was like 21. And, you know, I went back to an empty hotel room my mom was in the next room. I went back to an empty hotel room and laid on the floor and cried. And I couldn't get up because I was so depressed. I was so oh, depressed. Oh, I just beat Von Gulagon in one Wimbledon. I was so depressed. And the reason was because I put all my eggs in one basket and, and, my, and friendship suffered because I was just so on a, on a mission to win tournaments that I didn't feel like I needed to have friends. And that was a, a, a defining moment in my life because I went home and really reached out to people then and really developed friendships with the players and um, 
I was a happier person as a result. <laughs> it's crazy. awesome. It's just, I know it's crazy. No, it's, it's not crazy because we had Kim Kleisters on the podcast a uh, year, year or so ago. And one of the things she talked about is after she won, I believe the US Open, she went home to an, uh, back to an empty hotel room because all her crew had left. Uh, and she was there by herself and she was, had the trophy sitting next to her and she's on the ground, on the floor and packing up all of her stuff. And she was just like, wow, this is it. No. <laughs> wow. That's, I'm going to have to listen to that podcast. I, I didn't, you know, that's interesting that other, other players have felt that I, it was such a, it was a deep depression in my mind because I couldn't get off, up, up off the floor. And, so- um, that was because you had achieved something that you had dreamt about thought was the dream would that would make you happy but yeah. yet when you got home and you were essentially by yourself you realized that actually the re- the records and the trophies and the money really doesn't make you internally happy no i was empty i felt empty and i didn't have anybody calling me and saying oh we're so happy for you you know i didn't have any really deep friendships. And, um, that's, I think that's when I started making an effort with players, mm-hmm. you know, with Martina, Billie Jean and Rosie and Pam. And I started, you know, Wendy Turnbull, I started to develop friendships on the tour because that's one thing I could never understand about Maria Sharapova. Sorry, not to bring her into this, but I could never understand because I can relate to being like her in the sense of, you don't want to have, you don't want to get emotionally close to, too close to opponents, but at the same time, you're living, you know, you're living every day with these players and you're staying at the same hotel room and not hotel room, hotel, and you're traveling with them. And it's like a traveling band. That's a great story. If you're staying in the hotel rooms with them. Yeah. Right. saying we're all staying together in a hotel room. But, um, you know, I found that I needed when I went to work, which was a tennis court or whatever, I needed to have friends along the way, day to day. Well, I think the thing that might be a little bit different if you're you know, bringing Maria or Serena or even Steffi, for example, um, sure. you know, like right. players that were really very focused on their sport and winning like you were, like Martina, like all the greats. I mean, you have to be to be great, in my opinion. You really have to be because you yeah. have to be singly focused. But um, I think that they they try to develop their friendships away from tennis as well. So that I know for Maria, like she has a core group of friends that are away from tennis and not involved in tennis. And same with Serena. She has a very good core group of friends away from tennis. So I think, I guess one lesson from you is saying, make sure even at a young age that you're developing friendships away from the tennis. And it's not so bad to have friends on the tennis. Well, you know, we didn't have teams then. Okay. So we traveled by ourselves. And in the early seventies, as, as you know, you read about it, you're, you're too young, but uh, I mean, we, we traveled with each other. We would call each other and say, okay, I meet you downstairs. Let's get a van. Let's go to the airport. We, we get, we practiced together. I practiced against Martina, you know, as you know, before the finals of the French open, before the finals of a lot of tournaments, because we didn't have coaches and we are the only two left in the tournament. So I mean, we just hung out together and nowadays it's just so different. And I'm not saying whether, you know, this is, it's bad or good, but it's just, it's just a lot different. But don't you think, even though, don't you think even though, yeah, I love the, okay. It's, it's great that they have friends away from tennis, but you know, you're in that locker room a lot and you're, I don't know. I just, when you look at, do you not look at each other? I mean, I just, I feel like you're in it. For the same reason, you're all in it together. There are very, there are very, there are few uh, that are really social and that you know really do get along with. Uh, don't really look. Kim Kleisters was a good example. She, Kim was pretty open with everybody, but carefree, but, yeah. But most most players kind of have their little core, little niche. It's kind of like going to high school. You have your little group and you kind of hang out, and then you say hi to everybody else. But overall, there's only small, real groups. But there are some okay. players that walk in, do their job, and leave. But I can't. I'm just trying to envision Serena warming up with Hallett before the finals. <laughs> of- <laughs> well, you know, know, it was it was a different era, and <laughs> and if she was if she was in the '70s, she would have done it. It's it was a different era. I just think it's, 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 it's hilarious. So, I mean, I guess, um, 
So I so let me go back to the question that you were saying. I, I have to say, because of the way of life that I lived and my journey going to high school, you know, going on the tour at 16 years old and um, not going to college, being in a very kind of selfish sport because you have to think about yourself and you're self-absorbed. It did affect my, it did affect my relationships. Yes. And it took a while. Like I'm ready now. I'm 65. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> I get it. Isn't that, isn't that pathetic? You really feel like now in your, in your no. mid-60s that you finally yes. done enough therapy. I haven't had enough therapy. You've had enough, enough relationships and marriages <laughs> that it. you're finally out of your bubble and you're ready. And has the COVID-19 done that to you? <laughs> you know what? My, John Lloyd was my first husband and John Lloyd is like the greatest guy ever. And, but it was, I was married to my tennis and there was nothing other than that. It was like, he was on the men's tour. I was on the women's tour. We never saw each other. And I was just devoted to my tennis. And when I got home at the end of a week or whatever, I just had nothing left. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I feel, and that plus I was 24 when I got married and I'm like, I tell my kids, I have three boys in their twenties who are not married. And I go, thank God. Because 20 to 30, you change so much and it's, it's hard to, I don't know. So I, I kind of give myself a pass for that one. So Andy, and then Andy was 20 years and three kids and it was great. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a successful, great relationship. And you're still friends to this day. You still, yes, we are. We're still close. very close. We're still a family. Right. Um, I just went through, I don't know, I was going through menopause or something. I was like mentally and emotionally like just handicapped during that time <laughs> i you know i don't know what direction but i mean even it's I mean, called midlife crisis I, I think it was because you know greg's a good guy too and i nothing but i mean i have three i've been married to three really good guys and um i blame not blame but i, I think my own evolving and my own kind of decision making was um was the result of the of the failures of them more than more than theirs this episode of the racket magazine podcast is brought to you by sergio tacchini revitalizing and disrupting the status quo since 1966 follow them on instagram at sergio tacchini underscore official and go to sergio for more Enter the promo code RACKETMAG at checkout and you'll get 30% off your order. Yeah, I mean, I just think that people, you know, I think it's great to hear this um, from you and, you know, most people in general to talk about. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You, everybody has a perception of somebody until they really get to know them and really hear them and really listen to them, you know, and obviously you and I have a, a very good relationship now and we work together a lot and we spend a, a lot of late nights in hotel rooms after we've worked 14 hours at, at ESPN and the first thing we want, want to do is have a glass of wine um, and just sort of ruminate over the day and, and everybody. Um, I guess moving on to a little bit about ESPN, when you did get divorced from Greg, you, you sort of threw yourself into doing television. You'd done a bunch of television throughout, but your television, you do a lot now with obviously with ESPN. And yeah, 
I, I want to know how different it is for you doing television now as opposed to what it was like 20 years ago. Uh, FYI, you called my Wimbledon doubles final for NBC and I've given you shit about this in the past that you were pretty much, <laughs> pretty much not even watching the match. Thank God for Ted Robinson at the time because he was actually, he goes, oh, it's, it's three break points. This is, they'll be serving for the match. And you're like, oh, that's great. <laughs> So are you sure that was me? I don't. <laughs> are you sure that was me, hey, Thomas? Because well, I don't I'm know. Pretty, I'm Do you have it? You did talk about okay. playing uh, doubles. You know, was that for NBC? Uh, was that NBC? That was must have been. Yeah. When I the listen. Okay, tell me. Listen, the 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 year after I retired, I you know Bob Kane was my agent, and he was um, you know TV was like the next step. I was horrible. I was absolutely horrible. And I remember I worked with Jimmy and I worked with John McEnroe. So I worked with both of them. And um, I remember thinking to myself, like I didn't, when I played, I didn't think that much. I relied on instinct a lot. So I didn't have a lot to say about what was going on in the, in the, on the court. And I didn't have a lot to say about, the strategy of the players and I didn't have a because I didn't do a lot of thinking and I remember I just I was horrible I didn't have much to say oh that was a pretty nice shot down the line ace she's got a great serve you know it was pretty pathetic okay so that was then and then I stopped and Mary Crillo um you know just just got the job okay so Mary kicked me off okay um I love Mary. Mary's great, by the way. Mary is, well, I mean, she, don't we all aspire to be like her? Oh, uh, yeah. And when she's commentating a match, she's, she's super. But um, anyway, so then I didn't commentate for like 20 years. I mean, that was really, that was a long time ago. And then I remember after my divorce from Greg, I was like in a fetal position for six months in bed, going through kind of depression. And it's like, oh, she's Chrissy, what? Okay, big deal, 18 grand slams. You've had three marriages. How do you feel about yourself right now, really? So I was going through that, that crisis of feeling really down on myself. And I remember Lauren Sprankopan, who's my agent now, called and said, you know, would you like to do something for, with this English accent, would you like to do something for ESPN? They were calling and would like to, you to go and commentate. And I said, no. I go, that's the last thing I want to do. I just want to roll up in, in a fetal position in bed for another couple months. And, and then he came back and he said, they stood, they're very persistent. And, and, um, this is the they, worst English accent I've ever heard. I know. I'm but sorry. Continue. Because it's great. great. They're very persistent. And they're just saying, you don't have to sign a contract, but maybe you'd like to do like a week at Wimbledon just to check, just to see if you like it. And I go, no. Okay, so finally came back again, and I go, you know what? Yes. All right, I'll go. Fine. Because I looked at the roster, and I saw it was Pam and Mary Jo and, you know, my friends. And I thought, oh, this, this could be a fun week. So that was my first um, – and then I, I, ever since – I think I've been with them for 10 years now. So it's been great. It, it, and I, and I like to say, it got me out of bed. It got me out of my depression, and I went to work, and – did a little more research on players. And I think that I'm a little more intelligent now than I was 40 years ago. So I think I can speak a little bit better and I have a better vocabulary. So plus the fact that I, I've been coaching my, at my tennis academy the last 25 years. So I kind of have a different, I mean, I know the game better. Yeah. Point blank. I know the game better. Do you feel like it's important sometimes to step away from being such a great player? Uh, I've always felt that really great players, it takes them a long time to sort of get over them. I mean, don't take this the wrong way, but get over themselves. Like not say, well, I can't believe that she didn't do that or this. And, and just right. be like, um, yeah, you remember what it's like. Not everybody's as perfect as you. Um, and so, <laughs> yes. you know, no, I mean, I mean, you went. For sure. You, I mean, you went sure. years without losing matches sometimes. So it's like, you can't relate to some of these, like, players ranked 30 in the world that lose a match every week I mean and they are they're losing a match every single week every player loses every week except the one that wins the tournament it, you know what I, I it, it's not that I can't relate to them losing every week okay because I know that that happens but funny enough what I couldn't relate to were errors like unforced errors like yeah. in the bottom of the net or in the fence like 
every third or fourth shot, somebody going for a winner, making errors. And, and you know, when I first came on the scene, I'm saying with ESPN, I, I saw a lot of errors. But I've seen that change because mm -hmm. uh, thank God we have stats. And now it's, it's really interesting. That's where Serena has really improved because when I first started commentating, she was making 40 winners and 40 errors. Yes. And now she's making 40 winners and 15 unforced errors. Yes. So everybody seems to be cleaning up. I think being solid and being consistent is underrated and should be um, out in the forefront because, um, and I always thought that you're, you're always a little more critical when you are not far from your own career. But as the time went on and by, and I realized that the game had changed and it was about taking more chances, hitting more winners, being more athletic. Um, you know, it's, I mean, West Tennis before this virus was, was looking really strong. What do you feel about, speaking of women's tennis, how do you feel yeah. about the conversation now with Roger talking about aligning the WTA and ATP tours together? What are your thoughts on that? Because obviously Billy's been pushing for this for since she was popped yeah. out. I love it. I, I remember Billy, you know, uh, she was the next generation from me. I mean, she was the previous generation, but she was my mentor really. And she was great. And I remember her talking about Jack Kramer and, and all the, the guys who poo-pooed on women's tennis and they didn't want to have anything to do with us. And they were getting, you know, they, their first prize money at that point was $10,000 and women's, women's tennis was 1,000. So it was like 10% of what they were getting. I kind of, I mean, but, but women's tennis, it wasn't, it hadn't evolved then. So I kind of understand both sides of it now you know, there's a lot of equality with women and men um, as far as uh, viewership and sponsorship and prize money and, and marketability. And I love it. And I'm glad that, um, I'm glad that Roger said it. I don't know if he said it thinking that it would take on so much power. <laughs> Come on. Right? Come on. You're Roger Federer. You know, every little thing that comes out of your mouth, a tweet is going to be Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But I don't know. When he said it, though, I think it was a nice idea. I think it was a nice idea. But, but Renee, don't you, don't you agree? It's a tricky question. It's, it's, um, it's very complicated. It's getting the women and the men together. There's a, there's a lot of logistics that, that have to work with both entities of the ATP and the WTA. And, and they have to come into agreement of, of a lot of things. I think it's going to be it would, it's complicated, but I love it. I mean, the men and the women obviously are much stronger together than apart. Mm -hmm. There's no question. Yeah, logistically, they do, they're going to have to work on a lot of things. I mean, Andy Roddick brought that up on yeah. last a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about that the logistics are not that easy, but he also right. believes if they bring them together, it will be a good thing. And, the, and then the players will finally have the power. You know, the well, that's true. Grand Slams and the tournaments and the, you know, the, the agents and it's more, it's going to be more about a collaborative group of players coming together um, to make a difference um, in the sport and, and TV rights. I mean, we, we know we deal with it all the time with ESPN and we have exciting prospects with Coco Goff and yeah. these types of players coming up. What would you, you know, speaking of someone like Coco, who's so young and has such a spotlight on her, do you think something like this actually having to like go away from the game and not have the spotlight. And you think it helps her develop her game? Yeah. 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 Well, she's, she can grow during this period. Mm -hmm. You know, she's still growing. Mm -hmm. She's 16 now, right? Is that correct? She's 16. She's still, yeah, she's, she's growing. She's maturing. She's probably being homeschooled. Um, I think this is, this is going to be great for her. And the one thing, and I tell my kids at the Everett Academy, and I, I, I probably, the pros are doing this too. The one thing you can't control and you can't get better is your fitness. And, you know, yeah, the, the virus might take away court time for a while, but you can still get fit. You can still stretch and get more flexible. You can still cardiovascularly improve. You can still get stronger with, you know, weight training. And, and I'm sure Coco what about Coco's doing all of that. What about meditation and mindfulness? Because we've talked about this as well. Yeah. Was that even a conversation when you played? Like, or were you just naturally able to block everything out? I would, well, I would, 
uh, look. <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking. Okay, the mental part was my. The, the mental part was my strength. I mean, the physically, I, you couldn't put me in the same category as a Steffi Groff or a Martina as far as athleticism. So I had to compensate and make up for it in some capacity. And I think the mental toughness, the focus, the, the you know, the blinders, I put the blinders on, um, and how I reacted to pressure. I think that... Can I ask you, can I actually ask yeah. you, I've actually never asked you this, but like, when you would oh, lose God. a point... I know. When I would what? When you would lose a point... Like, what was the first thing that used to pop into your, like, brain? Like, you know, like, I'd be disappointed, fuck, shit, you know, I'd be, oh, I'd be so mad, you know, and then, and then I'd oh, finally get back into my thing, or, or I'd think, oh, that was bad, or, you know, it's just a negative thought, right? Usually. Um, like, what was the first thing that you'd miss a forehand into the net? Well, first of all, I would say the same things internally that you're saying externally. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to repeat what you said, but I would say all those words internally. I would always uh, correct what I did wrong. I would always self-correct. I, I was a good self. I was, I coached myself well. Um, so if I hit a four in the net, the next, my, the, the first thought that came to my head was I got to put more topspin on my forehand. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was it. Yeah. I mean, if I lost a because I was too passive then I would I said I got to hit out more I got to be more aggressive mm-hmm. um, but I, I I I had the ability I think to play differently with each opponent depending on how they played you know I I I changed my game according to how my opponent played and I think some players go out there and play the same all the time mm-hmm. do you agree yeah. like nowadays or do you I mean I kind of wonder strategy I think more players are more concerned with their, the way they're hitting the ball. And I think in our day, maybe because there are more weaknesses, but we, we incorporate a strategy a little bit more than they do this in this day. Well, I don't know. I coach now and there's a lot of strategy going on. So, yeah. so yeah. Yeah, the combination, I think so many players do so, right. so well. And if there's a slight little, you right, know, right. You know, well, that's what I'm thinking. It was more obvious in my day that the, I mean, there were, it was more obvious in my day. Nowadays, the players have great all-court games and they know how to volley. They know, they hit great ground strokes. They have power. I disagree with you. I disagree. Actually, more in your day, people actually knew how to volley better than they do now. Because I think the grips have changed so much now and they're so, you know, Western grips or, you know, so far around on their grips are going into mm. the They have such a huge grip change to actually hit a normal volley. Whereas you would hit a forehand walk into the net and actually quite, quite regularly be able to hit a normal volley. And I don't see that at all anymore. And I think the <laughs> grip change has definitely affected the volleying ability of a lot of players, men and women. Um, and I think that's the one thing that needs to be taught a lot more in uh, academies. So you're saying that because the Western grips, a lot of the, a lot of the women don't change their grip when they come to the net. And yeah, but I guess what I, I guess my, my point was the top players, like when I came on the scene, three of the grand slams were on grass. So that's why Margaret Court, Billie Jean King, Rosie Casals, Virginia Wade. I mean, I go, the list goes on. They all serve volley, but they, they didn't, didn't have any, nobody could hit a ground stroke. But even after that, like I think about Steffi, um, you know, when Steffi would come into the net, Steffi had great volleys. I mean, you played against her. I mean, right. yeah. she could make a she could make a clutch volley under pressure. No, no, nobody like easily. Um, I don't see a lot of the great players having those really competent hands at the net anymore. And I think no, yeah, yeah, okay. Last great player that I think had that. I mean, Serena will tell you her volleys are not great. You know, I mean, Venus had. Yeah. Good volleys. I think Lindsay Davenport had good volleys. Like I'm thinking of all the number ones. Kim Clijsters was a good volley. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think yeah, you're, you're right. So yeah. I don't know. I, I think stand corrected. It's, it's a it's a it's a mixture. But I think the ones with the really Western grips, they find it really hard to come into there. They have no idea what they're doing half the time. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's true. They they know it. It's not a secret. I mean, that's why. I mean, I've heard players say to me, well, there's a reason I don't go in. I mean, have you seen my volleys? And I'm like, yeah, I have. 
which is why I don't understand why players don't hit a lot more drop shots, which is why Bianca Andreescu does really well. <laughs> yeah, but I, I guess my point is, in my day, I think they were more specialized players. I mean, you're a clay quarter or a grass nowadays. I still think they have better all-around versatile games. Okay. Uh, I, give me that. I see your point. Well, I just, I, I think it's because there's a lot of different court changes. You know what I mean? Like a lot of different speed changes now, whereas in back in your day, there was a lot of tournaments. Well, on the rackets. I mean, it was hard to come to the net when you had a wood racket for crying out loud. <laughs> God. It's like dragging a club up the court. I <laughs> I mean, God, nowadays these rackets. I mean, I have a better volley after I retired. I had a better volley in my 50s than I did in my 30s. I think I did better from the ground than I did when I played. <laughs> Chrissy, also, one of the things that I've, I've had a really good fun time the last couple of weeks talking to a bunch of players about their charity work. And I had the Brian Brothers, we released their podcast actually today. I'm filming, I'm doing this with you today, but we released nice. it today. And, you know, we had Andy Roddick a couple of weeks ago and he had his great charity for a, a, over well over a decade now. I think he's probably at 20 years probably. And the Bryans have had it for over a decade. Um, you know, tennis, one thing Andy said is that he's always been so impressed with the tennis community. You think about Andre Agassi, you think about, you know, Steffi even, has, you don't hear about Steffi's, but she's had one for over 15 years. Is that uh, in Germany? Is that in Germany, yeah, by the way? Does, yes, she, I have heard about that. Yes, she has good one for her. Children for Tomorrow. So I think a lot of the tennis right. players have done a really great job with their charity. You, yeah. of course, is probably, I think, maybe the pioneer of when it comes to charity for tennis players. Um, what, you're going on pr over 30 years. I've played in it about 10 years, so that's how I know yeah. that. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. What, what is the charity, like, specifically for you, and why did you pick that charity? You know, no specific reason. My charity is um, Ounce of Prevention, which is drug abuse, and prevention of drug abuse and I started it about 30 years ago and um, we've raised over 23 million dollars um, and I don't know I think that living in Florida every time growing up when I read a, a the newspaper um, most of the crimes were drug related the, uh, down South Florida there was always a big problem because the drugs are coming in from Cuba and from you know all the other the islands into Miami and I just thought that there was a drug problems. So I started it the year after I retired, uh, 35 years old, and I've had it for 30 years. And, you know, we have a great event. We have a great weekend. And thank you for participating in it. But I'm, I feel like I, at that point, I never, I didn't have any close relationship. I didn't have any relationship with drugs or anybody that I knew. Mm -hmm. So there, it wasn't for any personal reasons, but um, the more I visit these, um, the more I, these rehabs, the more I visit these places that I, I, I see and I talk to the women and the men and I see that, you know, I firmly believe that everybody deserves a second chance in life and everybody that people make wrong decisions. It doesn't mean that they're bad people. And so this is just not everybody can afford Betty Ford, you know, 30,000 a month, you know, so yeah. these are, um, you know, state owned and, it just um, kind of breaks my heart when I go and talk to the women and especially the women that have children, you know, and that they're separated from their children, but like 85, 90 percentile, you know, stat, most of these, these women get their life back on track. So it's, it's wonderful to see the progress and the hope that they do have. Did that, you know, over the last 30 years, did that, was that a part of your life that you were really thankful that you had like throughout the whole time of going up and down in your own life and having, I mean, your yeah. own conversations about being depressed and having go through emotional ups and downs and you were not somebody who turned to drugs, but could you even, no. could you sort of relate that maybe if you didn't have that sense of real purpose in your life with your own kids or have that tennis background where you were able to, you know, function, even being in a very sad moments in your own life. Like, was a part I, of you I, walked in yeah. those doors and you looked at these women and go, God, I, I mean, this could have been me if I maybe had... Absolutely. Well, oh, if I didn't play tennis. I mean, everybody's, you know, nobody's dealt with the same deck of cards in life. 
and you can come from drug addiction in your family. The environment that you can come from has a lot to do with it. But um, this is how a lot of people cope. And life is not easy. And so, yes, in, in your, I was lucky that I got involved, that my dad got us involved in tennis at age five years old to give us goals and to, and to give us some purpose in life. But that doesn't happen to a lot of people. Um, and, and as you know, life is, t life is tough. You know, emotionally, mentally, a lot of people aren't given the same, you know, privileges and given the same um, enticements and, and th th that we were given. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it made me feel good. And, you know, it's, I think that what makes you feel good also it, when you're down and out and not feeling great about yourself, I think that to be of service to others really makes you happy. Mm -hmm. It makes me happy to give. It makes me happy. It made me, I was so happy after I retired from tennis and I had kids. It was like, oh my God, it's not about me anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about my kids and I can give all my love and attention to them and not think about myself. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I feel with, with my charities. And, and you feel now at your age? <laughs> Stop it. We've come Stop. out. No, no, you yeah. said it, that you feel like you finally got to a point where you, understand you like yes. I mean because because when when you talk about it the way you're talking about it it's like all right I had this tennis career at 15 I was a superstar so I'm already in yeah. this little tiny bubble yeah and then I played and I played and I played and I was great and I was great and I was great and I was like Chris Evert Chris Evert I'm amazing I'm amazing you're so amazing oh my god you're Chris Evert oh my god you're Chris Evert and you have that your whole life and then you retire and then you go straight into like my kids my kids my kids my kids my kids Right. And then yep. you never really stop to go, who am I? Exactly. You got, how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, I have two things to say. First of all, a lot of therapy, Christy. The first thing that, that you mentioned was when you're a tennis superstar, um, everybody pats you on the back and tells you how great you are. And I don't care how humble you are and what the humble, you know, surroundings you came from, because I came from a very humble family. Trust me when I say this, after years and years and years of people telling you how great you are and policemen letting you off the hook for a ticket and people how letting many, you in a rest, you know. How many? <laughs> how many tickets? Five, maybe five. Oh, you're Chris Everett. Oh, okay. You, you get, love your tennis. You, I'll, I'll let you off this time. But when people, <laughs> after people tell you how great you are, they, they, what they mean is you're, you're a great tennis player, but they tell you how great you are you become a little entitled and you become a little enabled and you know, your team enables you. And I, I saw that in me and I see that a little bit in today's game too. Um, so that's not always a good thing, but yes, in answer to your question, I, I have, um, I, it's been quite a journey and, and now it's about my kids are in their twenties and they're pretty, pretty, pretty settled. And now the next, I mean, the next, what, 25, 30 years it has, is going to be about probably me and, and giving, you know, charity work, but also being peaceful, right? And kind of hopefully um, growing as a person. We ended uh, our last podcast with <clears throat> us talking about going to an ashram together <laughs> in India. Oh, yeah, that, how did that go? That, did we go? No, I see. I can't even remember if we went or not. Okay. I think you would remember if you'd gone to India with me. Yeah, I know. I'm teasing. Um, we have been in a, many a hotel room together having a late night wine discussing life. Um, but I hope that, you know, we can maybe find you um, someone of significance for the rest of your life because... Now that you've told everybody that you're out of your bubble and you've you're you've finally learned a lot about yourself. <laughs> that well, I'm happy. I'm 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 you know, and I don't need really I have a lot of love around me, you know. So it's it would be nice, it would be really nice, but I don't I'm not desperate about it. Thank you, Renee. Well good, but, but I'm still looking for you. <laughs> it's been such a joy to like get to know you as a human being. Um I, I tell the, I tell a funny story. I think I've told you the story, but um, uh, when I won my first Grand Slam, uh, a friend of mine said, why don't you try and be Chris Evert? Try and be Chris 
I really tried to be the best I could. And I actually won my first Grand Slam, try, trying to be you. So that really, <laughs> so thanks a lot. <laughs> but also you are such a different person off of the tennis court, away from the tennis court than you were as a professional on the tennis court. So I'm just glad that you were able to sort of share some of those more human side of you today. Well, thank you. I mean, I think you get to a point in life where you're comfortable with your flaws as, as well as your strengths and you're honest about it. And isn't that's being comfortable with yourself and that's being real. And that's where I want to be right now. Well, Chrissy, thanks again. This is uh, you're our first returning guest and I could not have wanted anyone more than you to do it. So thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Enjoyed it, Renee. Thank you. You do a great job. Mwah. Bye. Bye. And that's it for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Ruggieri and the team at Acast. Find us at racketmag.com slash podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.